All right, Pew Bibles, pages 483 and 484. The blue volume that's there. We are in Esther, and now we've gotten... uh, We've, we're getting. You never really get beyond an introduction like this, as you'll see. That that pregnant uh, first eight verses, in particular, is a reason why that is so chock full of things. But the, the but that uh, chock fullness continues uh, as we continue in the Book of Esther, beginning now, chapter one, and verse ten, page four hundred eighty-three in your pew Bibles. On the seventh day, this is after the, the feast, the seven-day seven feast that followed the 180-day feast. On the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he commanded Mehuman, Bistha, Arbona, Bigtha, and Abagtha, Zithar, and Carcas, the seven eunuchs who served in the presence of King Ahasuerus, to bring Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown in order to show the peoples and the princes her beauty, for she was lovely to look at. But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command delivered by the eunuchs. At this, the king became enraged, and his anger burned within him. Then the king said to the wise men who knew the times, for this was the king's procedure toward all who were versed in law and judgment, the men next to him being Karshina, Shithar, Admatha, Tarshish, Neres, Marsina, and Memukan, the seven princes of Persia and Media, who saw the king's face and sat first in the kingdom. According to the law, what is to be done to Queen Vashti because she has not performed the command of King Ahasuerus delivered by the eunuchs? Then Memucan said in the presence of the king and the officials, not only against the king has Queen Vashti done wrong. I want you to notice the use of the term all, but also against all the officials and all the peoples who are in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus. For the queen's behavior will be made known to all women, causing them to look at their husbands with contempt, since they will say, King Ahasuerus commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him, and she did not come. This very day the noble women of Persia and Media, who have heard of the queen's behavior, will say the same to all the king's officials, and there will be contempt and wrath in plenty. If it please the king, let a royal order go out from him, and let it be written among the laws of the Persians and the Medes, so that it may not be repealed, that Vashti is never again to come before King Ahasuerus. And let the king give her royal position to another who is better than she. So when the decree made by the king is proclaimed throughout all his kingdom, for it is vast, notice the use of all, all women will give honor to their husbands 
high and low alike. Well, this advice pleased the king and the princes, and the king did as Memucan proposed. He sent letters to all the royal provinces, to every province in its own script, and to every people in its own language, that every man be master in his own household and speak according to the language of his people. And then one other text. If you turn to 1 Corinthians, and this is page 1,131 in your pew Bibles. 1,131 in your pew Bibles. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, and verses 18 to 21. 1 Corinthians 1, 18 to 21. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where's the one who is wise? Where's the scribe? Where's the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world. For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God, through wisdom it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. And don't you love this every week? Rapidly changing world, the grass withers, flowers fade. The word of our God will stand forever. To which your response is, hallelujah and thanks be to God. I want you to be reading the book of Esther. And I don't want you to be reading it one chapter at a time. In order to get, uh, to get struck with all that's in Esther, you really need to read the whole book through. And it's not that long, actually. It's ten chapters. The last chapter is only a few verses long. But read, just read Esther, okay? And remember that you've got flooring. You've got the the things that are going on in human history. You have the, the opulence of the palace and the power of Ahasuerus and uh, the glory of Susa. You have all of that flooring that's there that attracts your attention. But then you have the subflooring. And the subflooring, the promises of God, even though God is not mentioned in the book, God is in the whole book because God's promises are, in fact, the promises of God, and God is back of them. God, folks, if you want to put it this way, God has already written the script of all of human history. It doesn't mean we're not responsible. That's a mystery we can't understand. We're still responsible. God is absolutely sovereignty, sovereign, and he has written the script, including this one. And what you and I need to be struck with, even in this book that doesn't mention God, God is in back of everything everything, okay? God is in back of everything all the time, and it's illustrated in this book. Even though Israel seems to have forgotten God, remember they're not, they're not in the land. They're in, a, they're in a exile in Persia, a pagan nation, and God's name not being mentioned is, a, is almost, a, it's almost a metaphor for Israel almost completely forgetting God, but God 
doesn't forget them. And I just make this note here. Um, that's a great comfort for parents of children, and most of us in here are that. We have promises that are for us and for our children. And it seems that God has forgotten them because our children often forget God. God has not forgotten his promises, folks. They're yes and amen. Now, he's going to fulfill them in his way, but, but he, hasn't forgotten, he hasn't forgotten his promises. Okay, so let's, as we come to this, this, this section in Esther, there's a whole other layer of Esther. We talked about flooring and subflooring. The other layer in, in, in Esther, there's a lot of ironies in Esther, things that you don't expect, curveballs. And those ironies are, quite frankly, funny. All, all good books, all good stories have to have some humor in them along the way. And, I, and, and this book has got its humor, and you're going to see that today in the material that we cover. And it will illustrate for you God's own laughter. Why do the heathen rage and the nations imagine a vain thing? They seek to cast the cords of God away from them. He who sits in the heavens laughs. And you're going to see some of God's laughter in this text. And if God laughs, we should laugh as well. How many sermons do you have where you're told your response is to laugh at what's given? So here's the outline. If this would flunk any homiletics or preaching class, but that's okay. I'm not doing a homiletics class. I'm preaching. So here you go. Verses 10 through 12, first laugh. Okay. Verses 13 to 22, second laugh. And then last laugh. Last laugh. And for the conclusion, very important takeaway. I'm going to tell you right away what it is. There's no incidents in life. There's only coincidence. Not just things that happen. God's in back of all of them. And you see it here. Okay, let's begin. Are you ready for a good laugh? Here we go with number one, with first laugh. And this is verses 10 through 12. And Ahasuerus is at the center of things here. Seventh day, 187 days of holidays and feasting and unlimited amounts of wine. And so you can imagine the next, when the heart of the king and probably everybody else was merry with wine, he commanded these advisors, these seven eunuchs, who served in the presence of King Ahasuerus. And this is a harem. So if you're going to have a harem, and it's going to be run by men, they better be eunuchs, to bring Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown in order to show the peoples and the princes her beauty, for she was lovely to look at. But the queen said no. She refused to come at the king's command delivered by the eunuchs. And the king became enraged, and his anger burned within him. 
in Persia and in other pagan nations, there was the common practice when you were in a war council or making serious decisions of getting drunk. The belief was that when you were, if I could put it this way, somewhat out of your mind, that spirit that was in you, influenced by the intoxicant, gave you more clarity of thought about how to govern. And that's the kind of thing you have here in this war council. Everybody is merry with wine, and that's what this is. The king is gathering the people together to impress them with his unbreakable power uh, to prepare them for this war that will come with Greece. And so at the very end of the feast, they are drunken as they begin to make their decisions. But the king wants to do one other thing to impress upon these drunken men how powerful he was. Vashti was regarded as the most beautiful of the women in all of Persia. And as the crowning act of these 187 days, he's going to have Vashti come, and while the text doesn't say it, it implies it. With her crown is understood as with nothing else. Most likely, drunken Ahasuerus wants Vashti to be a porn star for these drunken, salivating men. And that's probably why when the eunuchs call for her to come with her crown, and probably nothing else, Vashti says no. And the king, who was made merry by all of the wine, and was supposed to have been at the height of his joy as people prostrated themselves before him because of his power. This king, merry with wine, is angry because of the disobedience of his wife. Now you say, well, how do you get laughter out of that? Remember, God's in back of this drunken king. God's in back of his stupid decision to make his wife a porn star. God is in back of his anger. God's in back of all things he already wrote the script. You say, but what's the humor in all this? Remember how the book begins. 127 provinces spanning all the way from India to northern Africa, or what would be called Ethiopia. That was the largest kingdom of the whole known world. In fact, it was the largest kingdom to that point in human history. And Ahasuerus is the most powerful man in the world. But he can't control his wife. And that's the humor, and you're right to laugh, because that's it. He cannot control his wife. 
And along with that, there has to be incredible embarrassment for him. All over a half a year is spent convincing the Medes and the Persians, this man has all of this power, all of this glory, all of this royal eminence. We're going to go against Greece. We can't lose. And what, what embarrassment that, again, he can't even control his wife. And, and you can imagine, see, see, here at the end of a party, what you expect at the end of a party, people go, oh, wow. You know, these people would end this party, if, he could, if they could be quiet, where they didn't think the king would hear them, they'd say, look at all that power, can't even control his wife. And so you have this, this, the humor of the embarrassment regarding uh, this king. Um, so that's, that's kind of the first part in here. And um, best of parties, and, 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 and the king is angry. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. And you see it illustrated here. Okay, so that's, that's number one. That's the first laugh. Second laugh, verses 13 to 20, and this is on the language of the wise men. So the king says to the wise men who knew the times, for this was the king's procedure toward all who were versed in law and judgment, and there's no doubt that these men were intelligent and skilled in the law, and then the seven that are next to him, all princes, all leaders of Persia and Media, who saw the king's face, verse 14, and sat first in the kingdom. I cannot overstate to you how much the theme of counterfeits is embedded in chapter 1 of this book. You have a counterfeit temple and tabernacle in the great palace of Ahasuerus. You have a counterfeit sovereign in Ahasuerus. Notice that language of all. He thinks he has all authority, at least on earth. Now, you have a counterfeit of wisdom and a counterfeit of wise men. And notice why these men are regarded as wise. They, they are those, verse 14, who saw the king's face. What does that mean? They were wise because they knew how to have the smile of the king on them. And they didn't want to be foolish by incurring his wrath the way Vashti had. And not only that, not only, not only was, was there that position that they had, but there was power. They sat first in the kingdom. What's wisdom? We have precious little of it in our culture, but wisdom is walking in the fear of God. It's being reverent for God in every decision that you make. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all people liberally. Wisdom is living with your face toward God 
who knows all things and is perfect. These wise men have their face toward what we're learning now is, is a king who has a real, real Achilles tendon. He has a real weak spot. Nevertheless, they want the favor of the king, and they don't want to lose their position. Now, I don't want to paint with too broad a brush. That's exactly what a lot of the world's wisdom is today. I write an economics text, and I'm a Harvard economist. And I want to be sure that it has the imprimatur of other Harvard economists so that it will be respected as a wise economics text. I could take an hour to tell you how that has been found very foolish over the years. I am in government, and I want to be regarded as a wise elected official, God forbid you say politician. Therefore, I look to my constituency to see or hear what makes them happy so that I don't lose my position, and I am regarded as a wise politician, regardless of how foolish the legislation may be. And again, I don't want to paint with too broad a brush, but this is rife in the scientific community, where you propound your theories and you write your manuscripts and your books, and you better toe the line when it comes to holding to a Darwinian view of the world. And God forbid that you should even smell at all of believing in intelligent design. And you'll be regarded is very, very wise in the scientific community. Even though, quite frankly, a lot of what you write is just plain poppycock. Black History Month, and I have two favorite figures in Black History Month. One is Booker T. Washington, who really led the way for the advancement of blacks in the 19th century and the other is George Washington Carver, who was a botanist of the early 20th century, uh, a man who was still regarded as one of the finest scientists in our day. And he was black, and he'd been brought up in poverty. And he was a very committed Christian. He was wont to say things like, God has his way of broadcasting his truth in all of creation. The question is, are we tuned into it? See, something like that. He was a, just a thoroughgoing Christian. And George Washington Carver was fascinated, particularly with, get this, peanuts and sweet potatoes. <laughs> and he came up with, in both of those, with hundreds of ways you could make use of peanuts and sweet potatoes. So here was this oddity. He was not only black, but he was a scientist, and frankly, there was nobody around like him. I don't think there's been a botanist like him since then who was just fascinated 
with the world that God had made. And this was the time where in the scientific community, you better not speak about belief in God because that's outmoded. That's not, that's not enlightenment science. And so this oddity, George Washington Carver would be interviewed by reporters, and his responses were, were fascinating. One of them went something like this. Do you believe, Dr. Carver, that you have exhausted the, what can be found out with peanuts so that you can move on to something else? And he responded, and he said, no. And they asked, why? And he said, well, if God is infinite, and he is, and his infinity is in back of peanuts, then my guess is there would be an infinite number of applications of what you can do with peanuts. And we give similar kinds of answers, always drawing these reporters and journalists to the fact that you're dealing with the wonders of God and creation. Drove the scientific community nuts. You want to know a wise man? George Washington Carver. Look for a person whose judgment is influenced far more by God than it is by the face of someone they fear or by a fear of losing their position. There's something you can chew on, the wisdom of the world. Okay, anyway, the, the, the wise men are here, and you learn what the wise men are from this. And and, and here, here is their, their, their wisdom, okay, as it's worked out. So that they, they, they are, and again, they are probably merry with wine as well. And so as they speak, the king asks them, according to the law, what is to be done to Queen Vashti, verse 15, because she has not performed the command of King Ahasuerus, delivered by the eunuchs, the all-powerful one. Now what do we do? Because this woman hasn't done what I commanded her to do. And then Memucan, who's the leader of this group, in the presence of the king, says, now listen to that. You talk about overreaction. Wow. Not only against the king has Queen Vashti done wrong, but also against all the officials and all the peoples who are in all the provinces, all 127 of them from India to Ethiopia, in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus. For the queen's behavior will be made known to all women, causing them to look at their husbands with contempt, since they will say King Ahasuerus commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him, and she did not come. This is part of the humor, as you'll find out. This very day, the noble women of Persia and Media who have heard of the queen's behavior will say the same to all the king's officials and there will be contempt and wrath in plenty. You talk about overreaction, folks. This is Queen Vashti's know that she did in a, in a palace. This is going to destroy the whole fabric of Persian society and for all we know, it's going to upset the entire world. Hence say the wise men who are what? They want the king to smile. And they don't want to lose their position. So they magnify the problem. And here's 
the way the wise men will resolve it. If it please the king, because this drunken king, incidentally, because he is the sovereign, let a royal order go out from him, and let it be written among the laws of the Medes and the Persians, laws of the Medes and the Persians, you can't change it, so that it may not be repealed, that Vashti is never again to come before King Ahasuerus, and let the king give her royal position to another who is better than she. God is in back of all of these things. No incidents. Coincidence. So when the decree made by the king is proclaimed throughout all his kingdom, for it is vast, all women will give honor to their husbands. They will give honor to their husbands. High and low alike. This advice pleased the king. Again, they want to smile. They don't want to lose their position. It pleased the king and the princes, and the king did as Memucan proposed. He sent letters to all the royal provinces, to every province in its own script. Again, we're going from India all the way to Egypt and Ethiopia, to every people. Now notice this. In its own language, because Persia, for an interesting reason, like all other empires, was made up of a variety of languages, but in their own language, that every people in, and that every man be master in his own household and speak according to the language of the people, the royal or imagine, folks, if this were done today. Government for a year and a half funds this massive drunken bacchanal in Washington, D.C. Everyone's drunk, and the king makes an edict that everyone in all of the whole country, the wife must submit to her husband. And everything will be done to ensure that everybody gets this in his own language. We'd be saying, our country's going to hell in a handbasket, right? This is the situation that's here. This is what the this is what the wise people want to have done. But God's in the back of this. And he laughs. What's the humor in this? Well, again, king is looked to as one with total control. You have, may I put it this way, all authority, O king. But you can't control your own wife. That, that's, that comes across here as well. But number two, note the humor. You would imagine that the king would want to keep this secret. Or at least make it just a bad rumor, and if somebody spreads the rumor, you could just squash them, that's all. But notice what he does. This, this edict is to include in it the statement, that, at least the implication, that Queen Vashti did not come, did not obey him. And that's going to be made known throughout the whole empire. What he would want to keep pretty quiet, because it's so embarrassing, is going to end up being very, very public in what is called specifically a proclamation. Proclaim it to everyone in verse 20. 
Now, that's another reason why this is humorous. The third thing is, it won't work. How, how do you enforce this? And there's another lesson about law. I, I must confess, folks, I cringe when we have some kind of a national tragedy and people line up for new legislation that will help correct the problem. Folks, if you're going to have law, there has to be a power to enforce it, or the law becomes meaningless. This is unenforceable, and in fact, it is meaningless. The law of the Medes and the Persians, written by a drunken king and drunken advisors, to go to the whole area of the whole empire to do something that you can't enforce in any way. <laughs> and that's, that really is designed to make you laugh. Now, it's true, this anger and this power really are scary. All unchecked power is scary. You get the, you get the power of a king, and uh, you, you let that be unleashed when he's drunk, and, that, and that's a scary thing, okay? But humor is embedded in this. Now, before, before we get to who has the last laugh, let me talk with you briefly about how you don't interpret Esther. Okay? And, I, and frankly, it's not the way you should interpret anything in the Scripture. And, and it's interesting the way some commentators have um, gone after this chapter. Number one, this chapter is not a diatribe against drunkenness. Now, the Bible does say in Proverbs 31, the king called Lemuel is not to give himself to drink because otherwise he'll pervert justice. And there's no doubt justice is perverted here. There's no doubt the king is drunk. That, that, but that's not what this is about. The other thing, and you can imagine this, this text is regarded as proto-feminist. <laughs> Vashti is the original feminist in history, and she is lauded for the way in which she stands against the king. And quite frankly, I share their laudation of her. If in fact she's going to be treated as a sex symbol, a porn star, good for her, that she said no, she wouldn't do it. That's not the point of the text then Christians will look at it and say, see, this is a lesson about a woman's submission to her husband. A woman is to submit to her husband. Yes, submission also has its limits. And if you have to sin against God or in such a way that you bring harm upon yourself, you don't, regardless of what certain evangelical pastors say. Parentheses. Don't you for a minute buy the idea that when a woman is abused by her husband, the biblical mandate is submit to him. That's perverse, and it's dangerous. A man abusing his wife needs to be called to repentance. Anyway, so this isn't about, <laughs> this isn't about wife submission. Nor is it about, ah, see, man, you're supposed to love your wife. And notice how Ahasuerus did not love his wife. 
he was drunk, and he was mean, and he was harsh. That's not what this text is about either. You say, what is the text about? Here you go. You ready? Here's the profound, deep, spiritual meaning here. The text is about Vashti saying no. That's what this is about. And as you'll learn in a little bit, that sets a chain reaction in which God is in back of every link in that chain. But we're not there yet. Okay. Last laugh. He who sits in the heavens laughs. Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? I would imagine if God did at this point speak, it would be something like this. Ahasuerus and the wise men, excuse me, Number one, Ahasuerus, I remind you, you have to live in a world that's under a curse over which you have no power. And that curse, Genesis 3.16, works out this way. The woman's desire, a desire to dominate, the woman's desire will be toward her husband. That's one of the kinks that God puts in a fallen world in marriage. And you see it in Vashti. She's going to be better than her husband. But he will rule over, he will tyrannize her. God's saying to Ahasuerus, that's that's the world that you're in. Like it or not. And you can't change it but I will undo it. I will begin to undo the effect of the curse, not by a new edict, but by a new heart that I'll give. Ahasuerus, you're a counterfeit sovereign. You can't do it, but I can. Excuse me, wise men, you men who are feathering your own nest. You want to change by law what only grace can accomplish. What you want to change by your edict, by your law, I will change by sovereign acts of my grace in men and women and boys and girls. And it won't be legislation. It will be transformation that will make husbands be what they ought to be and wives to be what they ought to be. I laugh at your legislation. No way will it do what you think it will. And then God saying to both of them, and incidentally with the wise men, with the wise men, notice, notice that they include in this at the very end that they speak in the language of the people. Why is that there? Well, from, as you're looking at it, i got to get right here, <laughs> from India all the way to Ethiopia, you, you had hundreds and hundreds, if not thousands, of different languages. 
And the goal was that in all of those languages, this edict that would only heap more embarrassment, that this edict be understood. But this had to undo a curse because it was the curse on Babel by which all the languages of the world were confused. Ah, but this is a counterfeit of the sovereignty of God in Ahasuerus and in the wise men. And they're going to undo the effects of that curse in this proclamation. God says, excuse me. What you are futilely trying to do with a proclamation, I'll do at Pentecost. Here's the fascinating thing with Esther. Esther is the last of the historical books of the Old Testament. There would be a few of the minor prophets that would be written under the inspiration of God, but these are the historical books. Um, first and Second Samuel, First and Second King, First and Second Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther. And Esther is the last one, and one of the remarkable things about this utterly remarkable book is it takes all the themes of the rest of the history of the Old Testament and brings them together. And in this book, the counterfeits are trying to do what only God can do, and God laughs. He who sits in the heavens laughs. And then he says to the whole, to both of you, this is your wrath against me, ultimately. And I'm going to make your wrath praise me. In verse 19, Vashti never again to come before King Ahasuerus and let the king give her royal position to another who is better than she. I'm going to make Vashti's no be the instrument of transforming the whole world. And you say, how can you make that kind of statement? Follow me. Had there been no Vashti no, there would have been no divorce of Vashti, no banning her from his presence. There would have been no seeking after another even more beautiful woman. If that had been the case, there would have been no Esther. And as the book goes on, because there would end up being a declaration of this awful power against all of the Jews in all of the provinces from India to Ethiopia, if there were no Esther... There would be no Jews. And if there's no Jews, there's no Jesus. And if there's no Jesus, there's no hope for anyone. All is sound and fury signifying nothing. But God's in back of this chain reaction that comes. And that's the reason why Vashti said no, because God is going to send his son to redeem the world. And he does, God has all power. And he's not going to be athwarted 
by Ahasuerus or by Vashti or by anybody else. And then it's as if God says, okay, you've heard what I say to Ahasuerus, you hear what I say to the wise men, you hear what I say to both of them. Let me tell you what I need to tell you. This is what's going to come down the pike. There will be another rejection of a king. And that king who is rejected will be crucified. But in his crucifixion, he will disarm principalities and powers like Ahasuerus. They'll still roar, but they are defanged. And he'll rise from the dead so that he has power to bring about in the world the things Ahasuerus and the wise men could never bring about. And he'll ascend into heaven and he will have all authority in heaven and on earth. And it's not going to be the reign of a drunken tyrant like Ahasuerus. It's going to be the reign of a very sober, meek and lowly King Jesus. See how Esther takes up themes of reversal that you'll read about in all, in all of the scriptures. Now, let's, otherwise there's so many things you could go on to. What, what's, what's the, see, see, has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? And you see it here. He who sits in the heavens laughs, and he who laughs last. <laughs> Laughs best. Okay. Now, but let, what, what's the takeaway in all of this? Okay. God is in back of everything, folks. He writes the script of him and through him and to him are all things. To whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. And there are no incidents. There are co-incidents where God is in back of every single detail and everyone has, in one way or another, a chain reaction. Joseph, haughty Joseph, despised by his brothers, can't find where they are. He happens upon a certain man, name not mentioned, name unimportant. God's in back of every incident, coincident. And the man tells Joseph where he can find his brothers. His brothers throw Joseph into a pit rather than kill him. Joseph is found by wandering slave traders. He is sold into slavery in Egypt. He is imprisoned. He finds favor with Pharaoh after a long time. Joseph becomes the instrument of the deliverance of his whole family. All began with the incident of a certain man that Joseph met in the field. Ruth, a Moabitess, enemy of God's people, goes to Israel, where quite frankly she would have had a bullseye on her head because she was a Moabitess, an enemy of God's people. She's told by her mother-in-law, Orpah, that she is to, or Naomi, that she is to go into the field 
scary thing. Go into the field and garner barley so that we can eat so we don't go hungry. Ruth happens upon a field. No incidence, coincidence. That field is owned by a relative of Naomi who will end up taking this Moabitess and redeeming her. And she's in the line of Jesus Christ. Ahab, powerful, wicked king in Israel on a smaller level, not unlike Ahasuerus, invincible. A man shoots an arrow at random. The arrow goes, the arrow goes into the area between the breastplate and the other part of his armor and right to Ahab's heart. And the invincible one dies in an incident that's really a coincidence. You see it, folks? You think like that. No incidents, just coincidence. And that applies to you and to me. This will, this will, in, this will transform your whole view of everything if you won't resist it, but you'll embrace it. Every person I meet, that's not an incident. It's a coincident. God is in back of it. What's the purpose? Now think, those of you who are married, think of how you met your spouse and how in the incident of meeting your spouse, there was the coincidence of God at work. Every action that you make, even sinful ones, while God's not the author of sin, he's in back of those things. And there's always chain reactions that serve God's purposes. Your bad news that you get. Not an incident. It's a coincident. God is in back of it. Your discouragement that comes, particularly when something striking hits you and you are downcast. That's not an incident, folks. It's a coincident. And I say again for all of us, and I'm preaching to myself in this too, embrace that. Not embrace what's wrong in it, but embrace that God is in back of the wrong and he's stronger than it. Though the, off, though the wrong may seem oft so strong, there is a ruler yet. See, see, this is what we sang before worship or before the sermon. Was it page six? God moves in a mysterious way. This is no incidence but coincidence. God moves in a mysterious way, his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. Deep in unfathomable minds of never failing skill, he treasures up his bright designs and works his sovereign will. Ye fearful saints, aren't you? Aren't I? Fresh courage take the clouds ye so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessings on your head. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face.
His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. Blind unbelief is sure to err and scan his work in vain, looking at the floor, not the subflooring. God is his own interpreter, and he will make it plain. You believe that? That's what Esther's about. And you're going to see more instances of humor, and you're going to see more ironies, and more of God moving in a mysterious way as we go through. But, but, but what's next? What's next? Well, apparently Ahasuerus begins to get out of his drunken stupor, and he decides he's going to have a quest. He's going to get his power back, and he is going to have a massive beauty pageant. Here she is, Miss Persian Empire. The most beautiful woman in the whole empire is going to be this king's. He's going to get his glory back. God's already preparing her. And um, Gentile Ahasuerus, guess what? It's a Jew. Folks, never, ever forget it. God always gets the last laugh. Let's pray. Our Lord, we are thankful. There are so many ways we could open up this text, but we could entitle the sermon, He Who Sits in the Heavens Laughs. And you do. We see how you make foolish the wisdom of this world. And in this in this book that, that brings together all of the themes of the historical books of the Old Testament, we see how the things of curse that run through all of human history, you see how this antichrist, this anti-true king, tries to do what only King Jesus can do. And our Lord, we bless you that you teach us these things so well here. And thank you, Lord, teach us. And, and this is a struggle for us because we're not passionless people. And we're to be angry and not sin. And in a fallen world, there are things that make us angry. There are things, may we be angry but not sin, but, but there are things that make us angry. There are things that make us weep over evil. And there are things that make us afraid, we confess. But Lord, teach us to laugh a little bit more and to realize you who sit in the heavens laugh. You will always hold those who oppose you in derision. And now you will say, I have set my king upon my holy hill of Zion. And these nations that Ahasuerus thought he possessed, they're going to be Christ's. And he will rule, not as a drunken tyrant, but as a wonderfully sober Savior. God, we bless you that you make foolish the wisdom of this world through Christ. Amen. Amen.